We are in a series in the book of Romans, and if you haven't been with us, we've started at chapter 1, verse 1, and as we tend to do here, we've been going verse by verse by verse through the book of Romans. Romans is a letter written by a man named Paul to a church, and we've been dissecting it and trying to figure out what he's saying. So tonight, we are going to be in Romans chapter 2, and we're going to start at verse 1. And we're going to take a look at verses 1 through 11. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn there. That's Romans chapter 2, starting at verse 1. We're going to look at verses 1 through 11. So as you flip there, I'm going to go ahead and read. There we go. Read our verses for tonight. Romans 2, verses 1 through 11. Therefore... You have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such, and yet you do uh, them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each according to his works, to those who by patience and well-doing seek glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking, And do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness. There will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. Let's pray one more time. Lord, as we um, begin to look through and meditate on, ruminate on, hope to find insight into your word, illuminate and open our hearts right now. Help us to understand and perceive what you are wanting to communicate to us right now, and help us to obey it with joy. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So there is this uh, Christian doctrine called the Imago Dei, or the image of God. It's derived from Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. And basically it means when God created people, he created people in his image and human beings above all other creatures bear the image of God and were meant to reflect his glory. It's a magnificent doctrine and it's one I think God reminds us of in funny ways sometimes. For example, one of the ways we can glorify God is to obey his word. So when the book of James says, everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry, I don't think it's a coincidence that God created us with two ears and one mouth. Be quick to use these before you use this. Another one that's interesting is in the Psalms and in Corinthians. Psalms talks about taste and see that the Lord is good. Second Corinthians says, we, the church, were the aroma of Christ. Your smell and your taste work together to help you uh, understand what food tastes like. Uh, Food is tasting as much as smelling when you enjoy a good piece of food. And did you know that your sense of smell is the sense of your five senses that's tied most strongly to your emotions? 
That's why when you hear or you see or you, you think about something gross, what do you do? Scrunch up your face. Because you're blocking, you're kind of intentionally blocking the thing that God meant for you to taste and see that he is good. It's just a natural reaction. There's one more that I'll say. People say it's rude to point the finger at someone. There's an old saying, every time you point the finger at someone, someone finish it. There's three pointing back at you. So when God made our hand, you point the finger, your middle finger, your ring finger, your pinky finger are all pointing back at you. I think what God is reminding us with that design of our hand when we point the finger at someone is what Paul is wanting to portray to the Romans in this message, to those who want to point fingers, to those who thought God's judgment in chapter 1 was just for those people. Romans 1 talks a lot about those people. Romans 1 talks about the sexually immoral. It talks about the murderers. It talks about the malicious, the coveters, those immoral people. And it's hard not to get the impression when you read Romans 1 that it's about those people because the pronouns used are they and them, used to talk about those who reject God, those who suppress the truth and unrighteousness as we've preached through the last few weeks. But then we get to chapter 2, and Paul flips the script. I think perhaps the most important word here in chapter 2 is therefore. So after everything he said in 1, therefore. That's what it's there for. He's now going to make a point about everything that was said in chapter 1. And then perhaps the most, second and most important word in our passage tonight comes right after therefore. Therefore, you. It's no longer they and them. Now it's therefore you. I think we have a similar temptation to what maybe some of the early readers in Paul's day did. We read Romans 1 and we hear the sermons that we've heard over the last few weeks about wickedness and immorality. And we really think like, yeah, God's going to judge those people. God's going to judge those LGBTQ people. God's going to judge those unrighteous people. God's going to judge those greedy corporations. God's going to judge those crooked politicians on the right or on the left. Or God's going to judge those people with bad theology who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Those people are committing the same sins in our day as they were in Romans 1, just with new labels in some place. But as we look at Romans 2, I want us to heed the point that I think Paul is trying to make here. The point that God reminds us of every time we point our finger at those people. Every time you point the finger at those people, whoever, you, whoever they are, you have three pointing back at you. And what's pointing at you in the context of this passage is God's wrath, God's judgment. God's judgment is not just against those people. God's judgment It's against all of us. And anytime you point the finger at someone else, you're only pouring gas on the fire. Human judgment stokes God's wrath. If you've ever seen or been around a campfire before, the fire starts to die out. So to stoke it, you have sometimes a poker. You poke the logs and the fire gets bigger. Or maybe you put uh, newspaper under the fire to make it bigger. You pour lighter fluid on it. You're just stoking the fire. You're making it bigger. When humans judge each other, All you're doing is stoking God's wrath. What I want us to look at tonight is, first and foremost, why? Why does human judgment stoke God's wrath or store up his wrath, as the passage says? Then I want to take a look at what. What makes God's judgment and God's wrath different than human judgment? And then we'll take a look at how we should respond in light of God's judgment. 
But to answer these questions effectively, we first need to identify and describe what this passage means when it talks about God's judgment in the context of what's being said here in Romans chapter 1. Contextually, in Romans 1, right, Paul is making the case that certain people have suppressed the truth and unrighteousness, they've rejected God, and they've chosen their sin, and because of that, God gives them over to their sin. And then in chapter 2, we have a description of God passing this final judgment in which the righteous and the wicked will be separated. So judgment in this context is not saying that we can't say certain people's actions are right or wrong or godly and ungodly. Paul is not making a a don't judge me type of point here. Remember, actually, at the end of chapter 1, Paul said one of the things, one of the signs that people have suppressed the truth and unrighteousness is that they give approval to evil. So this message is not saying, Paul is saying, no one can judge anything, no one can, can judge or talk about anyone's actions. The judgment spoken of in this context is talking about who is and who is not going to qualify for God's final judgment. Who should God accept? Who should God reject? A way to illustrate this. Some of you have heard uh, our, our pastor, our lead pastor in the back there, in the blue polo shirt, talk about his life before Christ. Before he met Christ, he was a thief. He would steal, shoplift, break into cars. Correct, correct me if I'm wrong. He was a thief. So judgment in this sense would be perfectly okay for any of us to, to go up to a young Chris Moran pre-Christ and say, hey man, you, you shouldn't steal. The Bible doesn't want us. God doesn't want us to steal. We could point to any number of passages in scripture going all the way back to the Ten Commandments that say we shouldn't steal, talk about greed, all the things that lead up to someone being a thief. Nothing wrong with that type of judgment. However, the type of judgment that stokes God's wrath is when we look at a pre-Christ Chris Moran and we say, God's wrath, it's coming for him. But not me, not me. I don't steal. What's wrong with that? Here's your why. This is why God's judgment is different than human judgment. And I can use myself as an example. Uh, I'm not saying this in any type of braggadocious way, but I can't remember in any, at any time in my life where I've shoplifted, I've never broken into a car and stolen anything, I've never uh, been someone who's been described as a thief. However, when I was a kid, there was this thing called LimeWire. Some of you know what I mean when I say LimeWire. Some of you may have used Napster. Some of you may have used WinMix. What this is, and I'm, I'm, um, in my 30s, when I, was, when I was doing this, this was like the late 90s, early 2000s. Back then, music came on CDs. And if you wanted music, you had to go to Best Buy or to Sam Goody, and you bought a CD. It had about 13 songs on it, and you paid 10 or 15 bucks, and that's, that's what you got. But then LimeWire came out, and it was this program you could download on your computer. Uh, you definitely get some viruses, but that just came with the territory. <laughs> you download it on your computer, you search for any song you want, and you could download it for free, and then you could start making mix CDs, which was like mind-blowing, because you used to, uh, you know, when you went to the record store, you bought one artist, and that's what you got. But now I could put any artist, any time, any genre, all on my mix CD, all on LimeWire, and it was all free. I remember when I was in high school, everybody was doing it, and it was wrong. It was stealing, but it was the culturally acceptable stealing. 
Because no one cares if you steal from, you know, rich musicians and their fancy record contracts. But this is exactly what Paul talks about when he says, you who judge practice the very same things. So if I want to judge a young pre-Christ Chris Moran, I have to realize that I've done the very same things, just the more acceptable version. This is why human judgment stokes God's wrath. Because every human who judges another human does so on an unrighteous basis. I'm sure that there are all of us who have stolen something in perhaps a culturally acceptable way. You've gone to the restaurant and you've gotten a refill when you didn't pay for one, or you've gotten a Netflix password that isn't yours, but you're using it, or you've taken office supplies that you know are only meant for work, but you're using them at your house. Almost any sin we try to point someone to uh, that we'll say they'll be judged for is one that a lot of us, if not all of us, have probably also committed in perhaps a more subtle way. So if we're going to say, you know, God's going to judge those greedy CEOs, those oppressors, those corporate fat cats, those privileged people, there's a lot of talk about that today. God's going to judge those who oppress the poor. Realize that when you say that, you've probably passed a homeless person or two, and you've had the dollar in your pocket, but you, you weren't feeling it that day. Or you've had extra money in your bank account, and you've known there are people in need, but you didn't give it to those who were in need. And when Jesus told the parable about the Good Samaritan, his example for generosity was go and do likewise. If you see someone who's in need, pay for their stay, put them up in a hotel, make sure they're taken care of, give sacrificially. You probably haven't done that every time that you've seen someone who's in need. We could go on with sins in that manner. And the reason for that is because we have these culturally acceptable sins that we think God is cool with, and then we have the ones that God is actually going to judge people for. Stealing from a store, totally wrong. Stealing music off the internet when everyone was doing it and we thought it was cool and making mix CDs, God knows my heart. He's not going to judge me. I'm not those thieves. I'm not one of those people whom God will judge. The problem with that thinking is that it contradicts what is in verse 5, that God's judgment is righteous. It's fully right. This is what makes God's judgment different than human judgment. No one gets away with anything. The culturally acceptable, the culturally unacceptable. I think Jesus illustrates this well in the Sermon on the Mount when he says, You have heard it said to people long ago, You shall not murder. Anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, anyone who's angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. And again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is, is answerable to court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. So you may read the first part and, and think, okay, I've never murdered anybody, great. And then you keep reading, and it, it gets bleaker. So if you're reading that first part thinking, yeah, I've never, I've never murdered, or, or even in fact, maybe more in a positive sense, I detest murder. I think taking innocent life is wrong. I'm pro-life. That's great. But then you have to finish the verse. Have you been angry with someone? Have you insulted someone? Jesus says, anyone who's angry with a brother or sister is also subject to judgment. God's judgment is fully righteous. Jesus illustrates this again with sexual immorality. You have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery, but I tell you, anyone who looks lustfully at a woman has committed adultery with her in his heart. 
So again, some of us hear that first part and think, okay, I've never slept with anyone who's not my spouse. But then again, finish the verse. Have you ever looked lustfully at someone, looked at someone and desired them in an unrighteous way? I remember hearing a statistic one time that the pornography industry generates more money, more revenue than the NFL, the NBA, Major League Baseball, and the NHL combined. So porn in this country makes more money than all four of the major sports leagues. Are there many people in this country who can point fingers about anyone for their sexuality according to Jesus' standard? There are no culturally acceptable sins in God's sight. That's why human judgment is worthy of God's wrath. And when one human who's worthy of God's wrath and God's judgment points the finger at another human who's worthy of God's wrath and God's judgment, all you're doing is building up wrath and judgment for yourself, you who point the finger. Jesus illustrates this well again, the parable of the tax collector. Two men are going to the temple. One is a Pharisee, one is a tax collector. The tax collector is hated in Jesus' day. He's the one who's seen as the oppressor, the one who exploits people and takes their money. The Pharisee is the one who commits maybe the culturally unacceptable sins. He's the one who's liked. The tax collector prays and beats his breast, won't even look up to heaven, and cries out to God for mercy. The Pharisee, the religious leader, the one who maybe sins in ways that people wouldn't get that mad about, he says, God, thank you that I'm not like those people. He's basically pointing the finger. Jesus says, one is forgiven and one is not. In other words, one will face God's final judgment and one will not. God gives grace to the humble, but he opposes the proud. Human judgment stokes God's wrath because it's inherently prideful. In a surefire way to be opposed to God or have God be opposed to you, be prideful. Be an expert in the sins of other people and a novice in your own sins. A question to diagnose if this might be going on in your own heart. How much time do you spend thinking about or being outraged about the sins of other people when you see those people sinning, whoever those people are, the LGBTQ people, the far right, the far left, the fundamentalists, the progressives, whoever it is? How much time do you spend outraged about that? Do you think, how are they so wicked? How could they do that? That's your pride talking. That's stoking God's wrath. And that type of rhetoric is all over the news. It's all over social media. Scroll through your phone, and you'll see it anytime you get on. Perhaps you're noticing a trend that every time we talk about social media, it's in a negative context. <laughs> I think there's a reason for that. But that's what you see. You get on social media, and you scroll. Look what those celebrities are doing. Look what this person is doing. Look what that person is doing. How could they be so wicked? But every person who writes stuff like that has committed their own sins. Every person who reads stuff like that and gets outraged has also committed their own sins. And according to this passage, everyone who writes that, everyone who reads that, everyone who engages with that, one day they'll face God and they'll face judgment and God's judgment will be doled out. Verse 5 speaks about this specific day in which we'll all stand before God and be judged for what we've done. Paul talks about this again in Romans 14.10, the end of Romans. Here we go. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. One day, we pass away. We're all going to stand before God and give an account for what we've done. And think about that in the context of these verses. 
According to these verses, when we pass judgment unrighteously on other people, we're filling up or we're putting strikes against ourselves in the bad category. All those times that you judge thieves, knowing that you've done your own form of stealing, all those times that you've judged the sexually immoral when you've had your own sexually immoral thoughts, one day you'll stand before God and you'll have to give an account for all your double standards. All the times you judge someone when you've done something similar. So in my example, stealing. I would stand before God and God would say, okay, you said stealing was wrong. Let's look at all those mixed CDs you made. Verse 9 goes on to talk about uh, the, the trouble and distress for everyone who's going to face God in an unrighteous basis and be judged by him. And verse 8 tells us who qualifies for verse 9. Those who are self-seeking, those who live by their own righteousness. That's essentially, uh, what I'm describing is essentially living by your own righteousness. So you say sexual immorality is wrong? Okay, let's see if you pass the test. Let's look at your search history. Better than that, let's look at your thoughts, because God knows your thoughts. Will you pass the test? In chapter 2, self-righteousness, which is all of us, what that qualifies us for is God's judgment. Now notice he ends chapter 2, verse 9, the way he ends, for those of you who are with us, chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. First to the Jew, then to the Gentile. Just as the righteousness was God, of God was revealed first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. So the judgment of God will be revealed first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. Essentially what this is saying is those who knew the truth will be judged as well as those who did not formally get the truth presented to them. But in a sense, everyone will be judged by God's righteous standard. So what we've learned so far is that human judgment stokes God's wrath. And those of us who judge have no basis to do so based off our own righteousness, our own double standards. According to this passage, our own works condemn us. And we'll all one day stand before God to give an account for what we've done. So how do we respond? The picture so far is pretty bleak. But there is an answer here. It's plain. It's simple. It's sweet. Chapter 2, verse 4. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Verse 4 starts out, do you presume? In the King James, I like the way it says, despisest thou. Do you despise God's kindness? I think it gives it a more impactful and perhaps accurate meaning Do you despise the riches of God's kindness? It talks about God's kindness being riches. And when I think of riches, there was one time we went to uh, Washington, D.C. and saw the Hope Diamond in a museum. It's about this big. It's a pure diamond, 45 carats. It's worth $350 million. When I saw it, I was like, that looks fake. If I saw that like floating around on the street, I would think it's something from Party City. I've never seen anything that clear. I would treat it like costume jewelry. Like, oh, this is a fake thing. That would be despising something that is actually worth riches. God's riches come in the form of his kindness, his forbearance, and his patience. And it's possible that some of us are treating that just like I would treat the hope diamond because I don't know any better. We're despising it. Because unless you see yourself worthy of God's judgment, you'll never grasp the riches of his kindness. I need verse 4. You need verse 4. We all need verse 4. 
Because every sin you've ever committed is worthy of judgment. The obvious sins, the culturally acceptable sins, the sins that you accumulate by judging other people, all of them, God is forbearing his judgment and he's showing you kindness. How do you know that God's showing you kindness? Breathe in, breathe out. We didn't earn that. That is God's kindness, his forbearance, his patience. Because we know the wages of sin is what? Death. Every breath we take, God's kindness, God's forbearance, God's patience. I feel bad saying that because we're not supposed to be breathing on each other, but (laughs) breathe with your mask on. He's holding back his, his, his judgment for now. He's allowing us to experience his kindness, his forbearance, his patience. And his kindness is meant to lead us to something. It's meant to lead you to repentance. Not those people, not those greedy corporations, not those oppressors, not those young Chris Morans running the streets stealing. God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. Repent means to to change your mind. And in the context of this passage, I think the mind change that needs to happen is deciding which righteousness we will live by. We can live by a self-seeking righteousness that's described in chapter two. We can be self-seeking and we can receive, or uh, we can be self-seeking by saying, uh, I'm gonna live by my own standard of righteousness. I'm gonna say what's right and wrong. And God says, okay, let's see if you pass the test. Or we can live by the righteousness received by faith. This is going back to chapter one. Chapter one, verses 16 and 17. I thought I had that, but I didn't. Okay. Chapter one, 16 and 17. Most of us know it. I'm unashamed of the gospel, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Which righteousness will you choose? Self-righteousness or receiving the righteousness of God by faith? That's a decision we can all make. Do I want to live by my own righteousness? Or do I want to, by faith, receive God's righteousness in Christ? Now, that decision, when I use the word decision, is not just a one-time thing that you check the box and you do when you're done. That decision, if rightly made, will actually lead to a lifestyle, a change in the pattern of living. And a simple test to see if you're living according to your own righteousness or if you're, by joy and thankfulness, living according to the righteousness that we have in Christ. Think about the amount of time that you spend and put two categories up. Category one is the time and emotional energy I spend being outraged about the sins of other people. Category two is the time I spend thanking God for pardoning my sin and confessing the ways that I fall short and remembering the grace that I've been shown in Christ. If you go through a week and there's lots of time in category one and almost no time in category two, it's possible that you're despising the riches of his kindness. It's possible that you have the hope diamond and you're treating it like it's from Party City. Every time you judge someone, you're setting a standard and fixating on the sins of other people without realizing the grace that you've been shown in Jesus may be a telltale sign that you've forgotten that you need Christ's righteousness, that God's kindness is meant to lead you, not those people, but you to repentance. So the decision to receive God's righteousness should look a certain way. It should have a certain impact on our day-to-day life. It's not just a decision that we check the box and we move on. This is a kind of central theme of Romans that some people struggle with because they read uh, epistles like James where it's more direct and more practical. And then they see Romans and they think, oh, everything's by faith. And really here, even in uh, verse seven, chapter two, and in chapter two and chapter one, there's a description of not just faith, but a lifestyle. 
Verse 7, he will render each according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. Like I said, that decision to trust Christ and trust his righteousness should lead to a certain type of lifestyle. And this passage says a lifestyle of seeking glory, honor, and immortality. Now, what is he talking about here? Is he just saying that you should be a moral person, that you should seek to be glorious, whatever that means, however any human could be glorious, that you should be honorable, and it's a little more practical, you know, try not to lie, try not to steal. Sorry, Chris, you're, you're not honorable. You're out. And maybe if you're glorious enough, if you're honorable enough, then you'll get immortality. You'll live forever. You will avoid the wages of sin, which are death. That type of logic is what's behind many, if not all, religions. But let's look at the words. Glory, honor, immortality. Glory here refers to splendor, to majesty. Honor is, is what we talked about. It's, it's being someone who's worthy of respect, someone who's truthful. And immortality is this pure, eternal state. The reason I've, I think these verses don't directly describe us or how we are to live is because Paul just said, none of us should presume that we're going to escape God's judgment. In other words, none of us should presume that we're going to live in immortality. None of us should presume that we're going to be immortal. And so far, that hypothesis is 100% correct. Everybody dies. None of us should presume that we have enough glory and honor to live forever. God shows no partiality. The Jew, the Greek, whoever you are, none of us is righteous enough to achieve that immortality. So whether, the, whether we're the Romans 1 type of sinner where it's obvious and it's clear and it's plain and you're just out there with your sin, living it and enjoying it, or you're the Romans 2 type of sinner who looks at Romans 1 and points the finger and then stores up judgment for yourself. God shows no partiality. All of us will face God's judgment. And while I say these words aren't directly meant to describe us, I do think they describe a person. All of these words cannot directly, fully be embodied by us, but they were embodied by Jesus. Matthew 24, 30 talks about the glory of Jesus when he comes back from heaven with power and great glory. Hebrews 2, 9 uses both the words, same word in the Greek, uh, the honor of Christ and also his glory. And then lastly, 2 Timothy 1.10 talks about the immortality that we have through Jesus that he accomplished for us in the gospel. What I believe we're seeing here with those three words, glory, honor, immortality, not things we can achieve on our own, but an outline, a silhouette of Jesus that will be filled in as we get through and as Romans develops. But for now, what we're left with is the call to repent, to turn from trusting in our own glory, torn from trusting and thinking we can be honorable enough to achieve immortality and to trust in Jesus and to receive his righteousness. We live in a Romans 1 world, just like Paul did, a world that's worthy of God's judgment. And human judgment only stokes God's wrath. When we point the finger at those people, whoever those people are, we're only storing up more wrath, more judgment for ourselves. But thank God. Thank God for his kindness, his forbearance, his patience. Every time we breathe in, we receive it.
we're not facing the penalty of our sin fully yet. He's withheld his righteous judgment from us so that more of us can come to him, receive his kindness, and repent. Repentance means no longer trusting in my own righteousness, but fully trusting in Jesus. A lifestyle of trusting Jesus where I'm no longer fixated on the sins of what those people are doing, but I'm fixated on the grace that I've been shown in Jesus for my own sins that I commit every day. And Jesus, this Jesus who's described and who really is the true embodiment of glory, the true embodiment of honor, the true one who can achieve immortality for us. If we're going to point fingers at anybody, let's point people to him. To wrap this up, I actually want to finish by reading chapter one, the end of it, and then how it transitions into chapter two. So we get the full effect of the message that's trying to be communicated. After that, we'll sing a worship song, we'll take communion. Um, I'll pray to close us when I finish reading these, but I I want us to perhaps just sit and meditate on these words as I read them. Um, Then I'll pray, and then we'll take communion. So I'm starting at chapter 1, verse 28. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteousness, righteous decree that those people who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man. Every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render each according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, that obey in righteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. Lord, as we um, reflect on these words, as we sing and as we pray, help us to understand and grasp the riches of your kindness, your kindness, your forbearance, your patience, that it's meant to lead us to repentance. I pray that each of us, as we um, stand before you now, receiving your glory, receiving your kindness, receiving your forbearance, that we would truly know it for what it's worth, and that it would lead us to having glad, sincere, and thankful hearts, hearts that just desire to and and are almost giddy to point people to Jesus, 
to point people to the one who's shown us kindness. God, would that make each one of us glorify you more by being kind to others, by pointing them to Jesus, by knowing full well the righteousness of God that will be revealed to us and to all of us, but at the same time being grateful for the pardon that we've received in Christ. Help us to be free of shame that wants to condemn us and say that we're stuck. Help us to be free of self-righteousness that says that we don't need to be um, or, or don't, at this point in our lives, qualify for the forgiveness that Jesus offers us. Help us to be humble. Help us to turn from our pride, our self-righteousness. Help us to turn once again to Jesus, to be who we are in Christ, united to him, committed to living lives that are worthy of the calling we've received in him. We ask, we pray this in his name. Amen.